I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and very little security. I rely entirely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. I keep my podcast advertisement free, and I'm not funded by any institutions, companies, charities, or wealthy investors. This is all me and you, the listener. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy on Substack meganmurphy.substack.com or directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on the same drugs podcast page. Thank you so much for supporting conversations outside the algorithm. Today on the show, I am speaking with Batya Angar Sargon, author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I'm so excited to talk to you. I really appreciate you making the time. I am so excited to be here. I saw you on Rogan. I don't know when it was, like maybe a year ago. And I was like, who is this broad? She is cool AF. She's drinking <laughs> Joe Rogan under the table. And then I... <laughs> found out more about you and I was like god she's even cooler like everything I learned about you was just like I'm a big fan and so this is really such a pleasure for me I'm so excited to be here oh that's way too kind of you to say because I'm a huge fan and um as I mentioned to you before we started recording I've been obsessed with your book I was just actually texting with Bridget and Joe about your book because I was like have you guys heard of this book and Bridget's like yeah I interviewed her last year I was like oh sorry she's my friend <laughs> oh my god that's so hilarious yeah thank you so much that means a lot to me yeah it's excellent I'm so glad that you wrote it it thank like you. really needed to be written thank you um and I'm recommending it to everyone I know I, I mean, one of the things that I, I loved about this book, besides the fact that you're right about everything, is that <laughs> <laughs> I, I found the, the research that you did into like the, the beginnings of media and journalism and newspapers so interesting, especially considering the current context of media and journalism, which is depressing in context. But I really, I was really interested, particularly in um, Charlie Day's story and the founding of The Sun. When, you know, when journalism started, it really, as I understand it, was about telling stories, telling the stories of the masses to the masses. And they did advocate for, for labor and they did sort of speak to and about the the underclasses and the underdog um i what did you i mean did you did you know all this before you started (laughs) researching the book or did you sort of find this stuff out as you were going along yeah i didn't know any of this before i started researching it um yeah it was all like very surprising to me and especially because 
like the contrast with today's media um, and how it's sort of waging war on like middle class values, <laughs> like from this position of like elite, the elite need to differentiate themselves from like the lame middle class, right? Like that is at the the bottom of everything that's like wrong with our culture, I feel. And actually, I think that probably unites a lot of um, your interests and your the battles that you're fighting and the battles that I'm fighting, because I think so much about the way that we talk about race and gender, like it looks like it's about politics. It looks like it's about race and gender. It is not. It's about class. And it is about this sort of war that these elites are waging on the working class and the middle class. Um, you know, I, I, OK, so this is what I wanted to ask you. One of the questions I wanted to ask you. So something people ask me a lot is like, um, are they cynical or are they just misguided um, in, in, in the way that they are waging these battles on behalf of the elites? Like, and I'm so curious, like what your take is, because you've paid such a hefty price for the, having the courage of your convictions and standing up to the new elite norms. Um, so it, like, as somebody who's been through that, are you able to still like steel man their position? Like, are you able to still be like, well, I can see where they're coming from, but I disagree. Or are you at this point where you're like, no, it's just pure evil. There's no understanding it. Like, where are you on that question? I don't think it's pure evil. Um, I think that most people do have good intentions in terms mm -hmm. of what they're saying, what they're doing. I do, I don't feel that everyone necessarily buys it, but I don't necessarily mm -hmm. think that's ill intention, you know, like when mm -hmm. people, you know, when, when my progressive friends from Vancouver post about, posted about, you know, like George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, when they post about issues like gender identity, all these kind of culture war issues, I do think that they think that they're doing the right thing. And I think they just haven't really thought it through, mm -hmm. which is ironic to me because at the same time, a lot of these people, and you write about this in your book, I find, I find so condescending. You know, they really, they believe that people who don't see things their way are stupid or mm -hmm. ignorant or that they're bad. And I mean, for me, it, it's interesting because I feel like I, like, I feel like I used to be like that. Um, you know, I, <laughs> we can be like, we're like, well, they're not bad people because I didn't think I was a bad, I thought that I was doing the right thing and saying the right thing. And the people who didn't agree with me were stupid or ignorant or evil. <laughs> well, so, so how did you get deprogrammed from that? Um, you know, it honestly, like it was a whole bunch of things. Um, one of which was just going through hell, trying to talk about the things that I wanted to talk about and to try to talk about gender identity and to try to say, you know, to try to speak the truth and, and being shut down and punished so viciously by these, you know, supposedly progressive people. And because I knew a lot of these people, I was like, you guys aren't working class people mm -hmm. like I I actually did come from the working class mm -hmm. and these people were middle and upper class people they're extremely privileged they're extremely sheltered 
they're living in a silo, a political silo, but also a silo, you know, they, they aren't exposed to diverse people and diverse points of views, which despite the fact that they advocate diversity <laughs> and they don't, but they, they still, they don't really still, they don't seem to see it. It's very strange. I don't know. I mean, you, I'm interviewing you. So what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it's like, God, I've talked about my book so much already. Like I'm, and you're so interesting. It's like um, such a, a great opportunity for me. But um, can I ask you a few more questions? Or like, no, you really? <laughs> yeah, go for it. It's like your audience wants to know this stuff too. I promise you. Okay, like, okay, they're not okay. gonna. Yeah, but um, okay. <laughs> um, do you like? So um, you had this experience. I had this experience too, where um, people that you know from your life, people you have had in your home for dinner, people you have been kind to people you have done things for, you know, helped, you know, personally, professionally turn on you publicly and decide to denounce you like out of, out of the blue. Um, mm -hmm. Does that, do you like, um, like, where are you at in terms of like having been through that emotionally? Like th that is like, I'm so interested in that. Yeah. I, yeah, that, I mean, that's interesting to me too. Like at this point, like I'm, I feel fine. I feel good. I'm really happy. I love my life. You know, obviously there's always things that could improve. I'd love to have more financial security and which is hard as like an independent. It's always yeah. going to, that's always going to be a challenge. Like, you know, I don't work for an institution or a corporation or anyone yeah. else. It would be hard for me to get like a normie job. Not that I want one. Um, but you know, like, but it's been a while, you know, like when it first happened, you know, when, it, when I first started getting canceled on mass, that was like in 2015. And then it happened many times since then. And the first time it happened, I think it was quite like traumatic. Like, I think I, you know, I almost had an emotional breakdown, like it was really hard. And then when it happened again, um, really over the gender identity stuff, you know, when my talks were being petitioned and protested en masse. And so, and I saw what people were saying about me online who were acquaintances or friends of friends. And then when friends start abandoning you and saying like, oh, I can't be around you or you can like, you can't come to my birthday party. Like literally it sounds so childish, but that really happens. <laughs> like, that happened to me lots of times. And because like so-and-so doesn't like you, so-and-so thinks you're bad. So you like, that was, it was painful, but it was also like, it made me really angry. And it's, I mean, that's a big part of the reason why I left Canada. Like, I was just like, I don't want to be around these people. Like, this is wow. bullshit behavior. Wow. And they think that they're justified in it. And they think that this behavior is okay. And they don't think they're in the wrong. They think that I'm in the wrong for making things uncomfortable for them by saying what I thought about this stuff yeah. or by writing about this stuff. And so, and since I moved away and I'm around people who aren't like that, I'm around people who are... I mean, I'm around all sorts. I really am around a diversity of people. You know, I'm around poor people, working class people, you know, middle class people, white people, Mexicans, like people from the US, people from the UK, people from Canada. I just was like, most people aren't like this. Yeah. Like, I was like, this isn't normal. Like, yeah. most people don't treat other people like this yeah. and they don't they don't buy into this stuff or they don't follow it and they don't care mm -hmm. right totally 
I don't know. I mean, did you did you experience anything like this? Yeah, yeah. and I I think yeah. I but I'm still like I don't. I wouldn't know how to answer that. So I I'm so curious to ask you because um I think it, it, it I am unresolved about how I feel about it. Like on the one hand, as someone who was super woke who like was in it, you know, it's very easy for me to remember what that felt like. And so it's very easy for me to extend like sympathy and to try to sort of extend the benefit of the doubt to these people that they really think they're fighting racism. They really think they're fighting, you know, homophobia or transphobia or whatever, um, when they're being cruel in this way, like they really see it that way. But on the other hand, like, um, how do you just how do you allow your worldview to end up in a place where you're justifying cruelty at that level like I struggle with that a lot like how can you be exactly like you said like how do you how can you maintain that like I'm on the side of the good when you're being so cruel to somebody in the name of something that's like like utter utter nonsense and so easily disproven and um the the thing that I know is that um like I think when I was in that woke place um the thing that's like really dangerous is not actually like hate speech it's something that you suspect might be true but if you become convinced of it you'll lose all your friends you know what I mean like even when I was in it I knew the difference between those things. Like I knew the difference between like racism and then like um, somebody questioning the statistics about, um, you know, um, you know, black people's encounters with the police, let's say. Right. Mm -hmm. But you code those things in the same way to avoid having to deal with whether or not that's true. Right. Mm -hmm. Because one of those things is clearly evil, clearly terrible, clearly awful. We don't even have to discuss it. The other one of those things is a huge social threat, right? Because if you become convinced by, let's say, Heather McDonald's statistics on police brutality, right, that it's being majorly overstated, you'll lose all your friends and all your social standing, right? If you can conflate this thing as racism, you don't have to, you don't have to deal with it because, and that dealing with it is dangerous. Um, but so that, that's the thing that I, I think, you know, is, is so interesting is like, there, in the back of your mind, even when you're the wokest of the woke, you know the difference between those two things. Like, you know the difference between saying, you know, one race is um, inferior and saying, let me look deeper into these statistics, right? Those things don't even happen in the same place in your brain, right? But if you can pretend they do, you can maintain a lot of social control. And that, when I remember what that felt like to, to, sh- to shut down conversations that were important because I was worried about the implications, right? That, that thing I think is, is truly indefensible, and, but it's something that you see a lot. And I always ask myself when I see someone doing it, it's like, are they like me? Like they know in the back of their head, like I'm conflating two things because it's too dangerous not to, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't I mean, it's really it's really hard to say for sure because, you know, I I'll sometimes still encounter much less rarely than I used to, but hear people who are you know, progressive people and they think that like they treat me like I'm stupid. Like they don't they don't necessarily know who I am or what I do for a living, which makes them more ignorant than me because they haven't bothered to think or ask me like, "Who are you? What do you do?" Like, "Oh, you just have these bad like if I say something critical about like, you know, the Democrats or like AOC or Biden or say, you know, like 
There's just basic stuff like, you know, there's actually good reasons that people voted for Trump. Like people who voted for Trump weren't all racist. Like there's good reasons why these people are rejecting the Democrats and why they might support the Republicans. And they're like, Uh yes, yes, you must be stupid, you know, and and I do think that they they believe that yeah um, are they are they like oh oh let me explain to you why that's are they like super patronizing and like yeah yeah like they want to explain oh, it to me hilarious. or they're like <laughs> well i don't know if we should talk anymore and i'm like that's fine i don't really want to talk about this anyway you brought it up but <laughs> i'm like i'm trying to have fun i don't want to have a stupid debate yeah <laughs> but at the same time it's like the, you know, like I at the same time, it's like I want them to see it's not that I want to change their mind necessarily to think what I think. It's that I want them to understand that they don't know everything. Yeah. Um, And and also to not, you know, to not vilify people like that's a big part of what makes me yeah, mad about totally. people, is that they're vilifying the people that they claim to defend and they don't realize that it. it's like you you think that you're on the side of the marginalized and oppressed and you're hurting the marginalized and oppressed and you're yeah. vilifying the marginalized and oppressed and you're actually erasing them. Yeah. You know, you're erasing them for the, from the conversation. Totally. And, and of course you cover that in your book and I was listening to your interview with Bridget recently and <laughs> you guys talk about that. And, and she said something like, um, you know, it's almost, they've almost become invisible. You know, the actual, you know, the immigrants, the working class, the like poor people of color, the POCs, you know, they've been invisibilized by these people who think that they're highlighting racial injustice. A hundred percent. I mean, a hundred percent. And I, I, I mean, in my analysis, like they are using race and gender to avoid talking about the ways in which overeducated liberal elites have actually benefited from income inequality. So they use this other topic. They're like, this is the real inequality when the real inequality is like, no, the real inequality is you're making a collective income between you and your husband of $400,000 a year and you act like you're living paycheck to paycheck, right? You know, that's the real inequality. It's not racial and it's not about gender. Um, and, and, and because it's a big distraction mechanism, right? Anything, people of color who speak up and say, actually, like, that's not, we're not on the same, you know, this is what we actually want. That really just gets in the way of what is a big elaborate, I don't want to say ruse, because I think a lot of people do it just just like you said, unconsciously, like they don't realize that they're doing it. They really believe that like they're pushing, you know, the, the, the arc of justice, you know, the arc of the universe towards justice. But what they're doing is distracting from the ways that they're benefiting from income inequality. And if anybody from a minority community, from marginalized community speaks up, that can only get in the way of their true aim. And, you know, it's we know from the data, we know from the data that, you know, starting in 2015, white liberals became more extreme in their views on race than blacks and Hispanics. So their views on race became woke. And meanwhile, Black and Hispanic Americans stayed normal, right? <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. we could see this in the in the in poll after poll. We know that you know the 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 media right now, elite media, is catering only to the top ten percent. They only want the top six percent of who call themselves progressives to be reading their papers, which is why the news has gotten so terrible and so woke. Not mm-hmm. about politics; it's about class. You know, it's always about it. Always comes down to that, and um, I, I think. 
something really important. What my next book is about is like, it's, it's not just like the bottom that's invisible. You know, 70% of Americans are working class and middle class, and we never, ever hear from them. You know, the, the, the Democrats have become a coalition of the super rich, overeducated top 10% and then the super poor who rely on government subsidies. And no one is, there's nothing left in the Democratic platform for the middle class and the working class in the middle who don't want handouts. You know, they don't want, they don't want to live at, on the generosity of rich libs. You know, they want jobs that give them dignity so they can support themselves and their family and have a fair shot at the American dream. I hear that from black Americans who are working class, Hispanic Americans who are working class, white Americans who are working class. They're not polarized. They're not politically divided. They don't care about any of that stuff. Like that whole polarization is an elite phenomenon, again, to distract us from the fact that there is a huge class divide. I'm ranting. I don't know why I forgot what the what the question was. No, I got off on one of my. I don't remember either. But (laughs) (laughs) I know. I I mean, you're right, and it's so important that you say these things because um, it doesn't appear to be being talked about in the media. And I mean, I you know what you said about the these people who are making you know four hundred thousand dollars a year between the two of them, you know. And I just, I think, I mean, this has always been the problem I've had with class because when I was a kid or when I was in high school, I felt so, I had such a big chip on my shoulder about class and what my family made and had versus what my friends' families made and had because I think they didn't understand. Like, I find that a big problem with middle or upper middle class people is that they don't realize that everyone's not like them like they really don't understand what it's like to not have money and financial security like they seem to be able to sort of talk about marginalization and oppression and all of these ideas but in reality they don't get it I mean again because they're really not around people who are like that but they they couldn't imagine you know this is I don't know probably an imperfect example but I would always get mad because when I would be like, oh, I can't do that, I'm broke, it actually meant I literally didn't have any money in my bank account. Whereas some of my friends would say like, oh, I can't do that, I'm broke, but they have like an inheritance or they have like, you know, like $50,000 in a savings account. Like it's like they're when they say they're broke, it means a totally different thing than when working class or poor people say they're broke. Yeah. And I don't know if that computes. No, it totally doesn't compute. And I think another thing is like, um, they don't understand like the the central value in working class life, which is autonomy. You know, like working class people are deeply committed to a sense of autonomy, like that they what they have they got by the fruit of their labor. You know, through the dignity of working for it. They don't want something from somebody else, and they want that labor to pay off. And I feel that the upper middle class that we're talking about here, you know, the top 10% who go to these fancy schools and then get these jobs in like professional or managerial roles, these people have never actually really had to work like that for what they have. A lot of it has been given to them. I'm not saying they didn't study hard for tests or whatever, but that's really the extent of it, right? Like, it's like, that's the extent of it. They, They really have, we're in this situation where they're There's not a lot of um, upward mobility anymore, which means that the top 10% is reproducing itself in its children, but like really 
nobody else is sort of getting up there anymore. We've become one of the most backward nations of the developed world when it comes to upward mobility. And like, that's a real problem. And, and that's really what the book sort of tells from one corner, from the journalism corner, right? So journalism used to be this like work, scrappy working class trade, like this low status job. And the kind of person who became a journalist was like somebody probably like you, like someone kind of like smart, but also like suspicious of authority, you know, like quick witted, maybe a little bit of a smart aleck, you know, like someone who like was sitting in the back of the classroom and like crack wise and get kicked out of class and like right. question the teacher's authority. And like, you know, at the time, I mean, it was men, right? But so the rest of the class would go to the factory, right, to join the factory line. But this guy was so anti-authority, he would have been a danger, you know, if he had gone to the factory, he couldn't get the factory job. So he'd become a journalist, you know, and he'd do the same thing. He would see himself as like constantly my job is to question authority. You, you're a person in power and you tell me something I say, who says? Who gave you power over me? Because he saw himself as responsible to the guy in the line, right? In, at the factory, right? That's who he saw himself as answerable to. Yeah. Today, the kind of person who becomes a journalist is the kid sitting in the front row of that classroom. And every time the teacher asks a question, me, 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 and the teacher has to pretend yeah. that they don't see them so they can give someone else a chance. Like these people are right. so into authority. They never break any rules. They never get kicked out of class. They got straight A's and they went on to some, you know, fancy university. We know that like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, NPR, these places that are supposed to be progressive. They take their interns from the top 1% of universities, right? So it's this kid is the kid who's becoming the journalist. And they, they, they hate questioning authority, right? Like they've never met an authority figure that they didn't feel deserved their respect, right? So instead of seeing their role as like questioning authority on behalf of the little guy, they are now have class solidarity with the people in power. And that explains everything about what you read in the New York Times and the, and the Washington Post and what you hear on NPR, like why this stuff is now like totally unreadable, unwatchable, CNN, MSNBC. It's all for that kid in the front row, you know, who like went to, that that's the mentality there. Like they've closed themselves off into like a kind of cast almost. And everybody else is exactly like you said, wrong or stupid and not worthy of persuasion. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I was so relieved that you wrote about the fact that the way that journalism school is set up and the way that journalism school funnels kids into journalism is like a major, major, major part of the problem. Like I went to journalism school. Like I, oh, wow. I, I mean, I dropped out. Like I went to, I was completing a master's degree in journalism and I was so frustrated because I was like, oh, all of these kids are like living at home and their parents are paying their way. Like I couldn't finish yeah. because I had to work. Like yeah. I was like, like the way that journalism school is set up is that it's a full-time program. You have to go there and be there every single day. And then you have to do a full-time internship. And yeah. I was like, you guys, I have three jobs. I have to pay my rent. Yeah. Like I'm not, my family is not paying my way. I'm not living at home with my parents. I cannot do this. It's impossible. You've set this up. You've set up this program in a way that only allows for very, very, very privileged kids to attend. And then the only way to access journalism jobs is through these programs because you can't get a journalism internship unless you're in a journalism program at school and that's where these kids are coming out of. 
And you you wrote about this book too, which is that like who can afford to start off in journalism at 30 or 40 grand a year and live in New York City? Totally. It's so funny. I mean, they never get as mad at you as when you point out their economic privilege. So I was doing an interview and I said, you know, journalists are part of the elites at this point. They're rich and they start, you know, people who make $2 million a year as journalists were like retweeting people who make $200,000 a year as journalists being like, when I got into this industry 20 years ago, I made $20,000 a year. And I'm like, first of all, like, yeah, things have changed a lot in the last 20 years. Second of all, like, yeah, anyone who can afford to live in New York City on $30,000 a year, someone else is paying their rent because that is not feasible. Like the, 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 they're like the average income of a journalist is $46,000 a year. That is true. That is proof of how exclusive this freaking industry is because 75% of the jobs are on the coasts. My God, who could possibly afford to live in Seattle or Los Angeles or San Diego or New York City or Washington, D.C. on $35,000 a year? Someone whose family is paying their way is making it easier for them. Someone who paid for whose family paid for college so they didn't have to work through college so they could take unpaid internships. Someone whose parents could pay for a summer internship in New York City where they were making nothing, right? Yeah. So that's three months of New York City rent that your parents are willing to pay for. Like that that is why the industry is so messed up. And that was just there was just a total status revolution about who could become a journalist. You know, as recently as like 50 years ago, the majority of journalists didn't have a college degree. Can you even imagine that? Today most of them have a graduate degree that's totally useless because you can't teach what we do. You know, mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm, only mm-hmm. learn it through humility mm-hmm. and through questioning yourself, which none of these people learn because, mm-hmm. you know, they get these graduate degrees in like, you know, woke studies and then they go out into the street. And when, when the New York Times sends people into the heartland to interview Trump supporters, they have to put in somewhere in the article that they're a racist. Like it's like they have to, you know, <laughs> like, because otherwise they'll be like, you know, the guillotine will be out for them. Right. The readers mm-hmm. will revolt. And that tells you everything you need to know about who those readers are. So it's like you end up in a situation where 91% of New York Times readers are Democrats. Like that was very hard for the New York Times to achieve to squander its legacy to the point where 91% of your readers are Democrats and you don't think that's a problem? No, because that's the business model is to cater to that same elite that your journalists belong to. Well, and they don't think it's a problem because all of those readers who are Democrats have decided that the rest of the population is totally irrelevant because they're stupid and ignorant and evil. So why even bother with them? It's so strange that people who are Democrats and people consider who consider themselves liberals and progressives have really, like, to my mind, rejected democracy and like fundamental democratic values. Yeah, it's it's very um it's very hard to stomach and it's very hard to stomach for people who are team maga who have to constantly be told that they don't believe in democracy, you know, when it's very clear um that there's just this um like this belief that in in this elite that they should get to tell people what to think, how to think, what to do, you know, this sort of this, it's, it's, um, it's a disaster. (laughs) I wonder, I, 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 tell me a bit about your trajectory, you know, where did you start and how did you end up where you are now politically and otherwise? 
Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I was raised in a very religious household, um, but my parents paid for college, which was very nice of them. And then for a while, I was less religious. And of course, you find your way back to it as you get older. Um, after college, I did want to be a journalist, but I didn't like the idea of asking my dad to support me for however many years. Like it just wasn't. It's just like I, I when it hit me that that was the way you do it. I was like, okay, find another career. So um, I went to grad school because they paid you. I got paid, you know, a $20,000 a year stipend to go to UC Berkeley. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, this is good. They're paying me to educate myself. Um, and then I moved to New York um, and I was writing my PhD and I was adjuncting. Um, and I wrote an article like totally by accident. And I, I was like, I have to find a way to make this work. Um, so I sort of like fell into it um, after completing my PhD. And um, it's very funny because like back when I was um, do like the the wokeness was kind of there in the like the theory we had to study, like as part of the PhD program. And then but when I started in journalism, it wasn't it wasn't there yet. It was still kind of normal. Like I remember in 2014, like I wrote an article. Do you remember that mattress girl with the, from Columbia? I wrote an article about a critical of that and being like, you know, affirmative consent is bad for women. Like women want like Eros, like we want, you can't have like an erotic life if somebody, if in the world of affirmative consent and that's bad. Do for you women. like this? Is this okay? Yes or no. Exactly. Like, do you want exactly. this? Like let's sign a contract. Like, <laughs> I know. I I don't think I, I, I spoke up as early as you did about that, but you know, of course you're thinking like, nobody wants that in oh bed. Like nobody that's not that. a turn on at all. And that's not how sex yeah, happens. Totally. Like, there's a, uh, there's this great scene in the first episode of the show girls, which um, I recently rewatched and it's so good and it's so conservative. People should rewatch it. But um, in that first episode, some guy asks one of the four girls if he can kiss her. And she's like, never ask me that again in my entire life. And it's like that. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. like, that to me was just like, uh, like it's such a great scene because, so I wrote that article and there was like for the New Republic, which is now one of like these woke, you know, like churnout machines. There was no backlash. There was no. So this is 2014. I mean, we had already started the process, like based on the data, like the beginning of the Great Awakening had started. But I don't remember anyone like people disagreed, but it wasn't like, get this woman fired. She must never have a voice again. Like this is unsayable, you know, and like to think of how far we came. Like I remember like seeing like the percolations of the wokeness coming and being like, whoa, this is sort of how is this escaping <laughs> the academy like how's this escape how's it bleeding out of you know like universities like it used to be like nicely you know like ensconced there but it took it, it not only bled out but it took over the mainstream media so that's again like the story that I tell in my book because I was like it was a real mystery to me you know I'm like okay I know that only six percent of Americans are woke like Pew the Pew Research Center it did a study. It asked people if they're progressive or not. It asked people what they think. It asked people, how many of you, like, it asked people, do you think that America's institutions are so deeply racist that they need to be destroyed completely and rebuilt from the ground up, right? Like, the the, the most basic woke question you could ask. So 6% of, of Americans said yes, you know, in the progressive camp. By the way, 
only 6% of black Americans are in the progressive camp, right? So it's like, it's all a farce, the idea that this is like on behalf of them, right? Because they don't want any of this. They don't believe in any of this. Um, you know, so um, I wanted to understand how is it that only 6% of Americans believe all this nonsense, but like 95% of the journalism is now totally enthralled to it. Like, how does that make business sense? How does that make marketing? Like, how does that make sense? Like, that was the conundrum, I, the mystery that I was seeking to, like, unravel. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I wonder, like, what was it? Was there anything that you found that was really shocking? Is it all these stats that you're talking about? I mean, you you probably had an inkling that this was what was going on. But, I mean, did you have any idea how deep this problem was when you no. started the book? No, I had no idea. I knew that there was a problem. I knew that something was happening. And obviously, it became clearer and clearer throughout the pandemic and with, you know, the George Floyd riots in 2020 and everything that happened there with the like racial reckoning. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that like, I knew that like normal black people don't talk the way the black people on MSNBC talk or, you know, the black columnists mm -hmm. in the New York Times. Like I knew that there was like some huge disconnect between how, you know, people in these communities think and talk. Um, but the, the the vast gap and just seeing that like bolstered by the polling, like everything I knew just anecdotally from my life and my relationships and but also like, you know, from doing this research, like the, the just the vast gulf. And, you know, I think this this the, the, the I didn't go in no like expecting to find that the great awakening was just one big smokescreen for class. I, I didn't know that going into it. But I was sort of thinking a lot about the Great Awakening and why white liberals got so woke. And I was thinking a lot about the journalism industry and that class status revolution that happened from journalists being working class to journalists being part of the elites. And at some point I was like, oh, yeah, that's the same story. Like that's 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 the story is like, you know, the Great Awakening is the, you know, the last stage of journalists abandoning the working class that they used to belong to and becoming part of the elites and like waging this war on the commonsensical, right? The, the common sense of middle class, working class Americans who think that, you know, Dr. King's idea that we should live in a colorblind society is like the right idea. You know, like finally America got there. So it's elites had to be like, what is this bourgeois nonsense? We can no longer believe this. It's racist to want to live in a colorblind society, right? Same thing with gender, right? Yeah. Finally, the nation gets to a place where most Republicans believe we should have like, you know, treat every human with dignity, you know, gay people should be able to get married, you know, let's not discriminate against anyone. And they have to take it one step further and be like, what? You still believe there's a difference between men and women? What is this heresy, right? It's basically this like hatred of like obvious middle class values like finally america got to this place where we believe everyone should live in dignity and finally there's no longer a partisan divide about any of these issues so they had to move the goalposts so that they could keep going to dinner parties and being the most progressive person there right and like being like well i'm better than you because my views are even more extreme and the, yeah. the problem is they left black people in the dust you know they left their actual needs in the dust and you see this on so many issues like immigration for example right 
So like they had, they moved the goalposts literally of what counts as racist to include believing you should have a national border at all, right? Like that's now considered racist. But of course, it's the black community who's paid the biggest price for mass immigration, like literally a 20 to 60% reduction in wages, a 10% increase in mass incarceration due to the, 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 the real, real costs of importing a totally new working class into your country to compete for, um, you know, low skill jobs. So, so they paid the price for that. And now the people who are, who claim to be on their side are out there saying it's racist. If you don't accept that we should be importing a working class from another country to take your job, you know, it's so messed up. Um, and it's like, how do you not see that? How do you not see that? Like, I, I don't think they're doing this for some like, let's put it this way. I think they truly feel sorry for these You see, it's impossible not to feel sorry for these people crossing the border. You know, like they, they, they look so sad. It's sad. And what they're escaping is terrible. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're asking who is benefiting economically from mass immigration, it's freak. It's that it's that couple with the combined income of $400,000 a year, where each of them works 80 hours a week. So who's going to take care of their kids? And who's going to make their food? And who's going to deliver their packages? And who's going to do their gardening? Because they don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. They, they, they employ the vast majority of domestic servants are employed by liberals in blue cities. And so they have literally benefited economically in a very real way from mass immigration, right? But they they don't see that. They don't see that this is a class fight between them and the working class that they are, their policies have displaced, both both parties' policies have displaced, right? They only see what's in their beating heart, like this compassion that drives them that they think makes them a better person. And they refuse to admit, like, your compassion is literally coming at somebody else's cost. Like, someone else is literally paying for it. And it's everything on the Democratic platform is like this. Their environmental stuff, where they sit there getting high on the fumes of their, like, goodness. You know, I'm so good because, you know, my carbon footprint or whatever. Meanwhile, they're, like, destroying working class jobs gas prices through the roof. They don't care. They take Uber. They take the subway. What do they care what gas prices are, right? It's the working class who's really feeling that, that pinch, right? That mm-hmm. it, All of it comes down to class, like this class divide. And what about right-wing media? I mean, you point out that it's, it's the right-wing media that's speaking to the working class. You know, they've, they've picked up that slack do you think that they have good intentions in doing that? Or is that just like, you know, oh, well, this is a way for us to own the libs and get, you know, more viewers or subscribers or whatever? Um, I think it's probably both. Um, you know, I would never ascribe, you know, good intentions to a corporation. Um, but I, I would say it actually. So what, while I was writing the book, I felt very strongly that, you know, neither side's media was representing the economic interests of the working class, but at least the right isn't insulting their values while abandoning them economically, which is what the left does. You know, they call them racist and bigots for just being ordinary good people, good Americans, you know, and then they abandon them economically while acting like they're on their side. But now you're starting, I think what you're starting to see is a real shift on the right in term, I mean, Trump really started this. His economic policy was very, very liberal. I mean, he went further than Bernie Sanders was planning to go in terms of a lot of his economic policies. So that was sort of a gut punch to the Republican Party. The Republican Party had been super libertarian when it comes to economic policy. Both parties actually had been 
very like free market oriented. And Trump hated that. He was like, no, 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 no. We're going to close the border. We're going to start a trade war with China. We're going to put tariffs on things. We're getting rid of NAFTA. I mean, that's what really spoke to his supporters. Like that, you know, if you want to know who was going to, who was going to vote for Trump, like the number one predictor was how decimated their community was by NAFTA and by like all of this, like shipping, shipping jobs overseas, you know? So, so, um, so that started a real shift on the right. And now you, you do see them sort of, um, there is a more sort of anti-corporation, anti-corporate strain to the Republican Party, pro-family. They're now really big on supporting families from an economic point of view. So that shift is really happening in a way that's very interesting. I don't know where it's going to go. But right now, when you think about things like, um, you know, I watch a lot of I watch a lot of TV because part of my job as an opinion editor, but I watch a lot of Fox News. And you, you, the, the thing that they don't do is they don't insult their viewers values. They say you're a patriot. You care about your family. You're not a racist. You love your neighbor, no matter what their race is. You know, you, 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 they, they respect where they're coming from as opposed to the CNNs of the world and MSNBCs of the world, which are sort of flattering the egos of their sort of overeducated viewership while insulting everybody else who, who doesn't. So it's very complicated. Like why is right-wing media speaking to the working class? You know, first of all, they, the working class has been so abandoned by left-wing media for so long, you know, 50 years at this point. They were just a captive audience for anyone who didn't insult them, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think actually probably a lot of Joe Rogan's listeners are working class because he does the same thing. He says, look, I'm going to trust you to make up your own mind. I'm going to give you a bunch of options. I'm going to ask some interesting questions. I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm not going to tell you what to do, you know, and it's so funny that the way that the left wing media criticizes Joe Rogan, it really betrays like this weird fantasy they have where like. They always say, oh, if he has this person on, his listeners are now going to do everything they say, you know, they're going to do everything he says. And it's like, because that's their fantasy of the power that they believe they should have. They have this fantasy that they, if they have a guest on or if they tell their viewers something, everyone is going to mindlessly like zombies listen to them. And they're so angry that they don't have that power. They're so angry that the American people now has like huge amounts of contempt for the media. So they look at someone like Rogan, who's got 11 million listeners, and they project this fantasy onto him that his listeners are like these zombies who do whatever he says, right? When like nothing can be further from the truth. The reason he has so many listeners is because he respects them. He treats them with respect. Right. And they cannot imagine doing that because they want the right to tell you what to think because they go to these fancy universities where they learn these ridiculous ideas like that. It's racist to want to live in a colorblind society. And Dr. King was wrong, like absolute ridiculousness. And they come out of these schools thinking the number one thing that they learn in these universities is to have contempt for people who don't have that same degree. It's all about status, you know, all the way down and and how to show that status to others. Yeah. So do you think that all of this is having or will have a negative impact on, I mean, I don't, I don't, I never even know how to describe them because sometimes I say liberal media and then sometimes I just say mainstream media because the mainstream media is the liberal media, but they're also not liberal. So like, it's like, well, is it the progressive media, but it's really the corporate media, Totally, totally. (laughs) The, the elitist media. But like, you know, the New York Times, the Vox media, you know, CNN, um, these these companies and corporations, 
that dominate news and information that present themselves at least as very progressive people that are really very aligned with the Democratic Party. Um, I mean, we've seen, I, I think that people are going to right-wing media sources more. That might just be my own projection because in the past few years, I've started reading some right-wing news sources, which I never did before. Um, and then the other thing that we've seen is a lot of people who are in the mainstream media, who are in liberal media, going independent, right? Like Matt yeah. Maybe, yeah. Barry Weiss, um, those kinds of people. And they're being really successful in that yeah. endeavor, which is awesome. Like I subscribe to those those substacks, and a lot of the information that I get nowadays is from these independent journalists who left the mainstream media. But do you think that this is actually having like a notable impact on these institutions um, that that they would even notice or care about? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's evidence in the New York Times that they've noticed this and they're trying to sort of very gently course correct. I don't think it's going very well, but um, I, I have noticed like so for the first time in my life. Americans are getting more conservative. Like for my whole life, the left was winning all these really important cultural battles, like, you know, against mass incarceration, against police brutality, against blacks, for women's equality, women's rights, for gay rights, right? Like the left was at the forefront of all that stuff. And they like won all those battles. Like they dragged the American people in a very important way to the left, to where there we are at now, where we're no longer divided over those issues, right? Like Trump released 5,000 black men from prison, right? Like Black men that Joe Biden probably put in prison with with the crime bill, right? Like we're at a place where like nobody's divided over this stuff anymore, right? The last prison, uh, the last police reform bill to be put forward was put forward by a Republican and then filibustered by the Democrats because there's anyway. Um, <laughs> try not to swear, but um, so um, but now so they moved the goalpost these class reasons we've been talking about to this place that's like totally just war on the working class, war on the middle class. And now Americans are becoming more and more conservative. And, you know, mm -hmm. so like for the first time in my life, I feel almost like reality has a bit of a conservative bias now. Like when I read a story that seems to be very wishful thinking on behalf of like lefties, I'm like, I bet you there's like something going to come out here. And like, inevitably it ends up being like a Kyle Rittenhouse situation where like, Totally. They just totally botched it. Right. Um, and, and I'm so I'm curious if you're noticing that, like, is your struggle? I feel like you're winning, like your side is winning this battle. Like, I feel like it's very hard to see that because like the cultural left, like the left has such a lock on culture. So it feels like they're so powerful. But yeah. you, you poll Americans, get out into the heartland, you talk to normal people. They're like totally on your side. Like, and I'm yeah. wondering if if you can feel that, like that, if I'm right, that like there's a sense of like that the, the tide has shifted in the other direction. I mean, in real life, for sure. Mm -hmm. Like most people that I meet out in the world, you know, there's like, a number of ways that this conversation happens but sometimes people come up to me here in this little town in mexico and they're like are you megan like and oh my god that's amazing and i'm like sweating and dirty and i have like coffee stains on my shirt and i'm wearing like dirty tube socks <laughs> and gross stinky converse <laughs> what I and i'm like yeah <laughs> like sweating like so much and um 
And they're like, you know, like, I just want to say first, they're like, stop blowing up Sayulita. We want to be able to still live here. (laughs) They're also like, they're like, you know, I just want to say like, you're right about everything. And I agree with you about everything. And like, you know, like good for you. But then also just like, you know, regular people that I meet wherever and I talk to in my real life, like here in town or if I'm traveling or at the airport, they're all they're all so fed up yeah. with what the what's happening in the media with social media that they're being fed these narratives that they're being insulted that they're being lied to that you know they can't speak the truth that the media is not speaking the truth democrats aren't speaking the truth you know that's what like i think the majority of people are angry about this stuff and questioning all this stuff and angry that they can't speak about it or that that perspective's not being represented in the media and social media. But it hasn't, it hasn't, I don't know if it's, you know, it obviously hasn't changed the media because CNN and the New York Times and Vox Media and NPR they're still pushing all these narratives. They're still, it's so strange because they really, they're representing almost no one when they're saying, you know, trans women are women. Um, like, uh, you know, and whenever the word woman even comes up, like whether they're talking about reproductive rights or like domestic abuse or rape or any kind of inequality that's sex-based, they always have to throw in, you know, something about trans women. They have to include that in the narrative, um, I guess, just to virtue signal about, <laughs> I don't even know what their virtue, like, I don't even know why they, why, why they, they feel like they have to do this, I guess, because they're worried that they'll be criticized if they don't. I'm actually, I mean, I'm not going to finish my answer, but what do you, do you think that they're doing that because they're worried about getting canceled or because they actually think it's an important thing to do? Well, I think if you've allowed yourself to be convinced that not doing it results in like trans people dying the way that Berkeley professor told Josh Hawley the other day, like if you really think that that's, if you've allowed yourself to be convinced of something that ridiculous, and I say that as a person who was convinced of many very ridiculous things in my past, um, I think that, you know, you you develop compulsions around that behavior, um, you know, to, to, to protect yourself from having to feel like you did that. Um, but how do you, like, where did you get the strength of character to, like, stand up and say no? Like at a time when that was su- there was such a heavy social cost. Um, I don't know. I <laughs> I think I mean I don't know. I I mean people ask me that a lot. Like I just I can't. I mean I actually think that I can't stand injustice. Mm. Like these people mm. talk about justice a lot, and they maybe believe that they're seeking justice. But I actually feel very angry when something happens and it's like wrong or unfair. And I don't think I can let it slide. Like I'm not I'm not very good at not saying what I think. 
and like and not talking about something and i mean this comes up in all sorts of areas like it happens in my intimate relationships which is like mm. really probably very annoying <laughs> for all of my boyfriends that i've ever had but i'm like nope that's not what's going on and we have to talk about this until like you understand that this what's actually going on like i can't stand misrepresentation or like you know, like I can't, I'm not the kind of person who's going to be like, oh, well, whatever, you know, like just like, who cares? It's just Twitter. Like people who say things like that drive me insane because I'm like, who cares? It's just Twitter. Like this is like access to information. This is our like elections. Yeah. This is free speech. Like this is like, you know, this is altering how people view the world and you know it's altering what we're allowed to speak about and how we're allowed to speak about and again like what what even what like statistics we're allowed access to you know like twitter dictates what totally. science is like who cares it's just the internet <laughs> but yeah i mean i don't know i just i mean it was so it was just so wrong and so incoherent um, it was so irrational, this idea that, you know, just the idea that a man can be a woman. But, you know. Why do you think it took off? Like, what's your theory about that? Like, I I don't know. I mean, I think there's a number of reasons. Again, I mean, I think that a lot of it had to do with academia and this elite, you know, very privileged minority of people who were in gender studies programs. I mean, I was in, I was in women's studies. I did a BA and a master's degree in women's studies. I was there, but you know, we who are learning theory and theory took precedence in these programs above real life and like the material mm -hmm. reality of women. So what I was learning in women's studies wasn't really women's history or even very much of the history of the feminist movement. It was modern third wave right. theory. It was like, you know, Judith Butler. It was ideas about like queering, queering like heteronormative sex and things like that. And it was about, you know, it, it was, it was very much attached to third wave feminism where um, you had, you would reframe things that were obviously like exploitative or abusive, you know, the, prostitution industry pornography and things like that and you would sort of try to theorize it into this like empowering for women thing um which you could only really do if you're a very privileged person like only a very privileged like white chick with money from vancouver would think that it would be like fun and sexy and empowering to dabble in prostitution <laughs> yeah you know nobody who actually had to do it because they had no other choice and was actually having to, yeah. you know, engage in sex acts with men who hated them or who were abusive to them or who they just didn't like or weren't attracted to yeah. would think that was like a fun thing to, to write an essay about. Yeah. I have this theory about why academia ends up there, which is that, um, like, so, okay. When I was getting my PhD, I was working on these books that were 300 years old. Right. Meaning for 300 years, people who are like much smarter than me 
were reading these books and getting PhDs on them. So like everything that's true about these books has already been said. Like that's just like a fact. So, but you still have to write a book to get the PhD, right? You have to write a thesis. So there's this big premium placed on not being correct, but on being interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can't be correct, right? Like somebody got it right before you, because like I said, 300 years, people much smarter than me. So you, there, in order, like your, your career depends on you being able to make something up and being able to make something up that sounds plausible means go for the counterintuitive, right? Like, because nobody who lived before our crazy, stupid times would have thought to think, no, actually prostitution is a feminist value, right? Like that's how you get a book idea, right? Because no one would have been dumb yeah. enough to say that. And so it pushes people to come up with these like very crazy counterintuitive ideas totally. just to survive. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I, because I remember like, because I was headed into a PhD program, like that was where I was, I was on track to move into doing a PhD in gender, sexuality and women's studies. And so you had to start thinking about your thesis proposal. And I ended up not doing that thank god um yeah, because seriously. i wanted to write I wanted to get into journalism yeah. and i wanted to like talk to real people yeah. right not to other academics but yeah you have to come up with some kind of an original idea which i'm 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 sure now that you say it like is very much connected to this idea that you know gender's fluid and what's a woman and maybe right. like this isn't you know and like like nobody can consent like no woman can consent to her boyfriend except a prostitute right like the only mm -hmm. consent that exists is the exploitative one right yeah. you yeah. have to be an academic to come up with that kind of nonsense and that but now it's totally mainstream yeah 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 gender identity to me it, it's it, i mean it pretty obviously came out of academia i mean there's all sorts of other factors that factor in now you know like obviously big pharma profits obviously these surgeons profit you know obviously these 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 charities um like that are funded based on this goal of helping or fighting for trans rights or helping trans kids or whatever like all these people now have jobs that depend on this idea um, that should have just stayed in a gender studies program, but escaped. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all so wait, do elite you not, ideas. So we might actually disagree on this. Do you not believe that anybody is trans or do you believe that some people are and like, like, where do you draw the line? Well, it's, I mean, it's, complicated because I believe that some people experience what's called gender dysphoria. Like I, I know people like that. I talk to people like that. People who really just have such a strong, overwhelming feeling that they were born in the wrong body. You know, whether or not those concepts make sense or are legitimate in any way is a whole other question. But uh, yes, and those people, I mean, I'm not going to stop anybody from doing what they want in their personal right. lives so long as it's not hurting anyone else you know if somebody wants to get surgery and go on hormone hormones and they're an adult and that's going to make them happier then that's fine you know oh, like right. i do think that they should be provided with more information about these surgeries and the impacts of these hormones because i think a lot of people don't realize how 
brutal some of these surgeries are and that they often don't work and that the parts that are being attached to your body are often rejected and it can be quite gruesome and that you can without like the ability to enjoy sex or orgasm that Um, that's another thing that i've like been thinking about a lot recently like orgasms are very important and you know if you're a teenager and you're like pre-sexual you don't know that like you don't know that you're signing up for a life without that and it's it you couldn't even communicate to an 11 year old no like what you wouldn't want to because it would be inappropriate but like um i i just think like sexual pleasure is extremely important and it's sort of um it's my understanding from talking to people that that is often something you will never get back if you undergo a lot of these surgeries and like I, you know, I can't imagine a life without that. And um, I think that it's, um, I mean, but I wonder, do you do you think that it's spe- that specifically that this is a? Um, I have a friend who sees this very much as just a new version of the old, like just hatred of women. I, I don't know that I see it that way, just because I feel like we're so past the kind of misogyny that I used to be convinced was like pervasive in the patriarchy or whatever. Like, I really feel like actually, I really feel like the Me Too movement was like a huge game changer in terms of like, shifting the power between the sexes. Um, and and that we haven't quite reckoned with it. And, and, and not entirely, I mean, obviously, I think is good. But some of the impact of that I don't think is great. But do you do you see this as like a new form of sort of anti-women misogyny? Or do you see it as sort of more in line with other forms of just like general academic thinking? I mean, I see it as incredibly sexist and misogynistic. Um, again, it's I don't think that it was a misogynistic plot <laughs> to right. destroy women. But the actual effect, which is that so many young lesbians would rather be trans boys because it's cooler, Mm -hmm. um, that the men, like the trans women who engage in trans activism and talk over or, you know, insult or or even worse, or threaten or attack women who say, you know, like men aren't women, or, you know, a woman is an adult human female, like they, to me, seem like men who really, really do hate women. Um, I think that a lot of what is understood about transgenderism, you know, and gender identity is rooted in sexist ideas, although I don't think people really realize it, you know, like, if you're saying, like, oh, well, if it's a boy and he likes to play with Barbie dolls and likes to wear pink, then he must be a girl. Like, that's a really sexist idea. Um, You know, because I thought that, you know, like back in the 80s, it was like, oh, boys and girls can do whatever they want and they can play with what toys they want and they can wear, you know, I was free to be a tomboy when I was a kid. Um, So, like, I do think, I mean, the effect is clearly very misogynistic. You know, the erasure of woman, the erasure of words like mother and like yeah. referring to women as menstruators or, you know, like all of these, like, I always get so mad because you, you'll, you'll see like, I mean, places like Planned Parenthood, but then companies that sell, you know, period products and period underwear, they've all gone gender neutral and they don't use the word woman. And it's like, 
You're literally selling like, it's like if you're selling tampons to women or you're talking about abortions, if you're talking about like something that can only happen if you have a uterus and you have a female body and you you can't say the word woman and it's like any man can have a period. It's like, well, how can you, you're profiting off of women. <laughs> Wait, like, are they, are they insulting women at the same time and women are going for it. Are they marketing those period underwear to trans women or to trans men like who <laughs> i think i think to trans men but they won't even say oh, it because okay, okay. i was like They'll i didn't say... to trans women like you too i'm sorry i, I mean maybe some about place, this, but... i mean maybe that would be that like, would be like the apotheosis like, right it's like, not only women who have periods like anybody all people right. have periods okay, that makes more sense i thought you were you're i thought the idea was like that they're saying to like trans women like well you're not a complete woman until you buy our period panties right like oh, got it. um which would be totally typical no but i think it's a lot like um you know the way that a lot of like woke ideas from the race category end up hurting black people most of all like you know this whole sort of the decision to let criminals roam the streets like you know 98% of crime is committed intraracially right so when you let criminals out they're going to go back into those same communities and kill and rape and murder and carjack their neighbors you know the people 54% of of, of murder victims in America are black and they're only 12% of the population. And you can't get anybody to talk about this. Like nobody cares about it. The Republicans mm -hmm. don't care about it because it's happening in liberal cities and the liberals won't talk about it because it's not woke. And so you, they end up hurting the people that they claim to care about the most because they're cockamamie ideas that they cooked up in the university and the mainstream through like all of their press, you know, are just like totally whack and like out of, not just like out of touch with reality, but out of touch with what those communities themselves want. Yeah, I know. It's, yeah, it's totally, it's totally strange. But I do, like, I do think that people are waking up to this. I think and, so too, yeah. Like, I, I do think you're right. I think that in some ways, the woke or the progressives or the libs or whatever, I think they're losing. Like they're not winning people and people aren't buying it. Yeah. And they're also, you know, like I started exploring different news sources and listening to different voices and talking with different kinds of people because I was just so bored of this. Yeah. And it's like these narratives are just repeated over and over and over and over again. I'm bored of this. Yeah. I'm intellectually bored. I want to learn something new. Like I want to be challenged. I want to be able to challenge these ideas. I want to be able to have interesting, different conversations. Who wants to just have these same conversations over and over and over and over? You already know what the narrative is supposed to be. Why yeah. bother reading a news story about it? Totally. Totally. So I'm, I'm going to let you go soon because it's been over an hour, but I'm wondering, you know, do you think that it's possible to fix the media or is it just, is it, sort of impossible because of the model, you know, because of the way that, you know, these companies need to make money essentially to survive, um, you know, because they have to cater to elites because that are their advertisers want the elite money. Um, I mean, is there, is a, there a way to fix this? Where do we go from here? I don't necessarily know 
that it is possible to fix it, but I also don't care. Like I'm not exercised about that because um, I think our media has gotten extremely nationalized and there's literally nothing you can learn from the national media that matters to your life, like nothing. And that's why you're seeing this sort of mass boycott of, of the mainstream media, because like there's nothing on CNN or in the New York Times and the Washington Post that matters to like most Americans lives. And because they're catering to elites and so they're full of stuff that those people care about. Um, so it doesn't I, I don't think it matters. Like there's nothing you could learn from the New York Times that you can't learn from the local bodega owner or from somebody in church or in synagogue. And that's where you should be getting your information from your local community and, and investing in that community. So I don't think it's likely that they're going to repair themselves. But I also, you know, I, the, the, the book, there's a lot in the book about, um, you know, these sort of golden ages of American journalism. And in those times, like the media wasn't unbiased. You know, it it was very biased, but it was biased on behalf of the working class. And I think what you're seeing now with um, especially YouTube um, and podcasts is people mm -hmm. like from the working class talking to the working class again, you know, and the, and those people are finding their audiences, you know, people like Joe Rogan, you know, people like you just you, you, the good old boys podcast, like an amazing podcast. It's just two working class guys, like two chuds, you know, just, just yucking it up about the news you need to know. And like, people are finding the stuff that's relevant to them. And I don't think that that's so terrible, you know, that, the media will be once again sort of much more like subdivided. It's not the end of the world because, you know, malfeasance on the right will be covered by the left. Malfeasance on the left will be covered by the right. You know, like there's going to be it's not like Fox News is going to let up on the Democrats. Right. It's not like, you know, the Democrats are going to let up on Trump. Like there's going to be, you know, power will be held to account and it will matter a lot less because it's very clear that those are the elites speaking to each other and they're not talking about what working class people want. So they're going elsewhere. And I don't think that that's necessarily so bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, I mean, yeah, and I guess, I mean, one, obviously, the internet and, and particularly social media has had a pretty negative impact on the media in a lot of ways. Sure. But I mean, one benefit is that people have been able to kind of start their own thing. I mean, what we're learning now is that we really have to not be reliant on social media to build our audiences. I mean, I obviously learned that the hard way because I was like, yeah. I kind of had to rebuild after I was kicked off of Twitter. But as long as we have access to, you know, a subscriber base, I mean, again, we can lose all those things too, because we can lose Stripe, we can lose PayPal, you know, like, but I, I am heartened to see what's happening with podcasts, especially, and with Substack and newsletters. And I think so many people are migrating to those platforms. And we can hear both from really talented journalists and from just regular people and from people who have something specific to say about a specific area Mm -hmm. um, or issue and they would never be able to break into the mainstream media and mm -hmm. probably they wouldn't even be allowed to talk about it on social media. So I suppose that's, that's, you know, one good thing. And I guess I hope that, I guess I hope that as people are migrating to those platforms and to those people, they're supporting those people on those platforms too. Yeah. Me too. And Yeah. I mean, I don't think you really need a subscription to the New York Times. 
<laughs> so I, guess I don't you have one. Subscribe to someone else's <laughs> newsletter. No, me neither. <laughs> I, like, I did for my. I that. think for 18 years of my life, I did. Oh yeah. Okay. No more. <laughs> nice. It was so great to connect with you again. Like I love your book. It was so awesome. Uh, thank um, you so much, Megan. You are an absolute treasure. And I hope that you are told that very frequently. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, <laughs> I uh, I mean, I'm just talking. <laughs> I don't think I'm anything too special. But um yeah, I'm so I'm so glad that we got a chance to connect, and I hope that we can stay in touch. And oh my god, I would love that. Be uh, in contact in the future. Yeah, and I hope that we get a chance to talk again, maybe in real life someday. I would love that. Please stay in touch okay. and keep doing what you're doing because it's very very important. Thank you so much. You too. <laughs> okay, take care. Have a great night. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, and regular private live streams. Alternatively, you can support this podcast directly on anchor.fm via the support button. I produce and host this podcast all by myself, and I'm no major funders, advertisers, institutional support grants or sponsors it's all me and you the listener you can donate any amount you like from five dollars a month to 20 to 100 or more or less it all counts thank you so much for supporting conversations outside the algorithm